The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, Nick Nanavati, and this week we've got a returning guest, perhaps our most violent guest, Anthony Vanilla. Anthony, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Nick? I'm great. I'm super excited. I love all things chaos. And Anthony, you and I, we may not always agree on what the right way to approach chaos is, but you know what? Results speak for themselves, and you are putting up the W's, and you're doing with the faction that absolutely no one is talking about, no one has been playing, no one has regarded as good. 40K is a shooting edition. What What is going on here? You're putting up W's with world leaders. Yes, so they definitely got um, the like exact right amount of buffs in the last data slate, um, which was cool. Um they weren't really lacking for, like, very powerful army rules or, like, even necessarily, like, good units. Like, all their data sheets are pretty good. They were just too expensive. Um, so when they came down in cost, combined with some other nerfs happening in the game, it kind of opened a hole for them, like, in the meta to be a lot better. Um, combined with people being, like, broadly uncomfortable with interacting in the fight phase in 10th, because why would you if you don't have to? Um, you know, there's been a lot of time to shine for the, you know, what is actually the fastest army in the game, which uh, most people don't know about world leaders. I'm, I'm so excited for you to break it down for us. For everybody that doesn't know about what's going on, this is a two-part show. Part one, we're going to get to know about Anthony, how he discovered the power that is world leaders, um, what that power is, what that looks like, what's the list he brought to LGT, and what's the basic principles about how you kill, maim, and burn. Beyond that, we're going to have go to part two. Part two is for our subscribers. That is going to be available on AOW40K.com. That is our Patreon. That's where you've supported me for years and years and years. And thank you so much for doing so because it allows us to keep producing this kind of content. So if you want to keep more episodes coming out, check out that Patreon and subscribe to part two because Anthony is going to be breaking down all of the where he puts the models, what his tricks are for the fight phase that is so um, na- uh, hard to navigate in 10th edition, and ultimately, how does he go 5-0 and in the land of elves and broken chaos space marines and all kinds of stuff without even taking a shooting base? So if you're interested in that, check out AOW40K.com. Anthony, talk to him about world leaders, right? How do you even spot this diamond in the rough amidst all the Wraith Knights and Obliterators of the world? So I was playing cast Space Marines for um, WTC this year. I played for Team USA, and I was, you know, assigned kind of like the Chaos wheelhouse because, like, outside of, you know, Jack looking at T-Suns, we didn't have a lot of Chaos expertise on the team. Um, and they were kind of a natural fit to what I had been doing in Ninth edition with me having an awesome run on Emperor's Children and then the back end of the edition on World Leaders. Up until I played Manny... In round six of LGT, I actually hadn't lost a tournament game on World Leaders ever, um, which was like my proudest accolade of them until I got drowned in cultists. Um, <laughs> what a way to go! Yeah, it's you know that's that's literally the first time the World Leaders lose in the lore is that they get drowned in bodies. So, oh, so um, you're basically, a prophet of corn. Dude, I am the prophet. I am the one who lights the way for others. Um, so the. Um, the big thing with them is that in WTC testing, because I had played a couple of games with them when the edition first dropped, is that they were super fast and it was pretty reliable to get them to be super fast and, you know, go and do things. But in a world of getting, like, overwatched by a Wraith Knight 
and GSC just broadly being what they were before. Um, they weren't really bringing anything like unique or new to a team. In addition to that, they were too expensive. It didn't exactly have enough assets to get over the line. Um, an army like world leaders is often balanced around the fact that it is planning to finish the game basically tabled. Um, you, as an only melee army, your only response to opposing threats is to put your units out there and accept that they are likely to have some form of response to them. And, or like, you know, turn over turn, you need to have enough assets to keep up with that rate of attrition. When the army's too expensive, it just doesn't work. But kind of like I was saying before, that balance update was able to restore, you know, basically function to the faction. I think a lot of players saw that balance data slate and they were like, all right, 10 points here on eight pound, five points there on whatever. Um, you know, it didn't seem like that impactful, especially like when you're when you're building a list across the whole thing. Like, how many points did you actually get back out of this? Uh, about three hundred. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is. Not. going up four. World leaders coming down threes. Like seven hundred point delta. Yeah, it's huge. So the like one of the big things was um, exalted eight pound used to be sixty points a model. They were one hundred eighty for a unit of three, which is just too much. Um, but now they're down to a much more reasonable fifty points per model, right? And in that's a list not significant that's significant at all, right? In a list that's taking, you know, nine, that adds up pretty quick. The regular eight bound went down a fair amount as well. Berserkers went down 15 points per squad. Like these are units that you're taking, you know, kind of in volume. So them going down any amount, it really adds up in a hurry over the course of a list. Makes a lot of sense. So I see how getting points reductions kind of keeps your attrition rate up. But like when I play against world leaders, I'm always like, how do you have all this stuff running at me? And then I take a shooting phase and I'm like, oh, there's a lot less of it now. Yeah, there's significantly less. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I totally get the the logic line of you balance around being tabled. And and it kind of goes back to your mindset of as, as an aggressive player, which I know we talked about last time you were on. Yeah. Uh, world leader strike me as a super aggressive faction. Is that pretty much how you play them? Just running up and charging people? So I generally play them pretty aggressive, but world leaders are actually the most relaxed of the armies that I play in a strange way. So if they go first, world leaders have a great propensity to like get in there, jam, you know, force awkward responses and like push people, you know, kind of like into a locker. Um, but that doesn't always play out going second. And when you go second as them, again, you don't have the guns to force like a full committal go turn in the way that CSM does, right? Like you play CSM, you know how it goes. You pull the Forge Fiends out of reserves, you get the angles, you drop the obliterators in, you shoot with those, like everything else pushes up at once. Like you can make the board, you can plunge the board into like a, you know, no pun intended state of chaos pretty quickly. Um, World leaders don't really have that benefit in the same way because you're stuck, you know, charging screens or charging past screens and like double fighting, piling in, doing what you can to cover that delta. So all you're doing early as world leaders is actually just trying to push a primary differential, which was an effective play style in ninth, but it's actually much more effective in 10th because the scoring has changed, right? You can only, you can score 50 points of primary and you can only score 40 points of secondaries now. So if you just, even if your own secondaries don't go great, which is like a whole separate thing that world leaders are one of the better secondary scoring armies in the game. Even if your secondary plan doesn't work great, your opponent is often in these games having to overcome a like 20, 30 point like differential on primary. Right, because there's world leaders on objectives, and ultimately, like you die when you stick them. We'll get into your tips and tricks all on the yep. part too. But like, you have such good objective control, and no one wants to go towards objective world leaders standing on objectives to take them. That's they so certainly do not. <laughs> 
And like while you're cowering in your little hidey hole, trying not to get charged off the planet shooting your guns, what points are you scoring? That's a whole different question. Yeah, exactly. So it's easy. I think people tend to lose the forest for the trees when they're playing world leaders a little bit. And they like, you know, you can get through like turn three feeling good that you're like, you know, knocking the world leaders dead. But you look at the scoreboard and you've got two zeros on primary and haven't scored a secondary point yet. And it's like, well... Yes, <laughs> there are less world leaders now, but unfortunately, 40K is ultimately a game won and lost on the scoreboard. So to me, and this is, I'm a very defensive reactive player, right? So like world leaders totally opposite to my play style, or so it seems. And like, I'm thinking this is like a control style army, actually, right? Where like, sure, I could just go run charge across the table in a lot of games. That is the game plan. And yep. that's, that's a victory. But like, you can totally set your army up behind walls and be threatening to charge the crap out of them and they either walk straight into world leaders charges or they sit back and don't score is that like a line of play you take often that is the most consistent line of play with world leaders um so the trick is that you're often parked behind walls set up such that someone can get an angle to shoot one asset if they'd like but then they are 12 inches or so away from your lines and that is just not a not a great place to be with the uh you know, with the general speed of the Eater's army. You know, we're talking about an army, Nick, that on, like, one unit per turn goes 17 and then charges. That's not total threat distance. That's movement and then it charges. Okay. Um, I, I need you to break this down for me a little bit more slowly. Right? These guys walk and they're, like, infantry on foot. I mean, they're yep. faster than regular space marines. But what is this 17 inches we're talking about? So let's go through. Well, actually, all infantry in the army that either starts in a rhino or is an eight-bound has this threat range. So they're the exact same. So to break it down, a unit of corn berserkers that start in a rhino, they will disembark from their rhino three inches. Essentially gaining three inches of movement, right? From there, they will move six, so up to a total of nine. From there, there are Blood Tithe buffs, or Blood Yahtzee buffs, depending on you know who you talk to. Uh, what Two of the ones that you can get are Advance and Charge, as well as plus two to your movement, and these are army-wide buffs. So the plus two takes you to 11 inches, an Advance roll goes as high as six, taking you to 17. Now, normally, you'd be at the mercy of the dice here, but World Leaders and their detachment also have a stratagem to automatically advance six without rolling a dice. That seems pretty fast. <laughs> move it 17, is. then roll two dice. Yeah, move 17, then roll two dice to charge. Um, the Them moving 17 was actually a key portion of why I took them to LGT. Because on many of the table setups at LGT, or for the UKTC in general, um, there is moving exactly 16 or 17 gets you from the safety of your giant L all the way into the opposing ruin protecting their like easy to get objective so no objective on the board is safe except for the opposing home objective at any point that is a fascinating thing you just there one like an amazing threat range of course but yeah. two you you said specifically that 17 threat range is why you took them to lgt which leads me straight into the next line of questions which is all centered around your actual performance at lgt you know yep. what we're talking about here today what was that preparation like that you even figured out that 17-inch charge ranges are a relevant thing. People don't really think like that. So how, how did you come up with that? So I was going over which armies that I was going to take to uh, LGT, and I was a little bit back and forth between eaters and just playing like the CSM build that I had a ton of reps on because of WTC. Um, and then going into the event, I found out that, um, just like 
you know, the way travel stuff often works out, I wouldn't be able to play the Monday of the event regardless. So, like, even if I had gone entirely undefeated, you know, beat Manny, won in the Shadow Round, I couldn't play on Monday either way because I had to schedule a flight for that day. So, given that, I was going to essentially have six games against, like, prime competition, and World Leaders, past, like, a couple of test games that I had played earlier in the edition, were pretty untouched by myself. Um, I figured now was as good a time as any. And in the process of, you know, going over, like, some, some of the terrain with uh, a friend of mine who's... You know, plays the UKTC a ton in Brian's site uh, and talking to, like, Innes Wilson a little bit about it. We, I had kind of, like, worked out, like, oh, wait a second. If I just put a rhino against the edge of this ruin, I can go all the way from here into the opposing, you know, safe space without them being able to respond because the angles into my ruin are impossible to get. And similarly, my, you know, safe expansion uh, objective, I can jump from there all the way into their home ruin without being touched as well. So it was like indirect shooting, except I shoot units at you instead of guns. Yeah, I always think about combat as like the most pure form of indirect, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're really just another dirty indirect player. That's right. Yes, I just, you know, once once I do it, that unit is gone forever, usually. But um, that's actually another part about world leaders that people don't often realize is that one of the other buffs that you can get from the tithe is a feel no pain. And if you already have a feel no pain, it makes it one step better. So the exalted eight bound, when they have the five up feel no pain running, demand a like a very real response from your opponent which if you're clever with positioning, you can then respond to with additional melee threats. So that's like kind of the play cycle of the army. So basically, that you send a missile out, they react to the missile, you can then keep that chain of reactions going. And theoretically, while you're doing this, you're standing on objectives and they're just playing defense. And ideally, you're contesting your objectives too, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, again, the I think the combined, like, primary of like the games that i won that were by a significant margin like my round three was very touch and go because i played an excellent player on gray knights but even in that game like he was only really able to score primary because it was priority targets um which is when you score a whole bunch at the end which my army being tabled at the end doesn't interact super well with that mission um but you know like again like across the games it was a lot of like we finished the game my opponent scored you know five total on primary or like 10 total on primary yeah so it sounds like you have a very primary domination army. What is your plan for secondaries, and how do people who maybe have their own plan for secondaries that's kind of built in, how do you handle that? So one of the big things is that um, this is a common thread across um, pretty much like all Chaos armies or armies that have access to a good transport. Um in the UKTC, there's a ruin that is directly in the center of the table and mirrored on both sides, so it's symmetrical. Um, this ruin cannot hold the center objective, but a significant portion of it is within six inches of the center, and that means that you can pretty safely assume you're getting homers every turn um, if you can get a unit into that position and not get it murdered, right? Um Chaos, in particular, is great at this because they have rhinos or they have nerglings in CSM. But specifically for world leaders, the ability to deploy a rhino 14 inches back from that position where it's very unlikely to get shot because there's a like basically a corridor that is safe. Um, you then move the rhino up. It starts doing homers. Yes, you're not touching the middle objective, but certainly neither is your opponent. And from that position, you can missile out the unit that is inside the rhino at least you know once or twice um, to dunk on primary or go achieve something else or kill an important unit or so on and so forth. Um, for example, in my list, I was often setting up the master of executions there so that when people would, as an example, like when I played against thousand sons, I send my big exalted unit, they answer it with Magnus, the master of executions solos Magnus. And that kind of play cycle is what you're looking for. 
Wow. So it's almost like uh, every game has its own tempo that you have to figure out as a religious player, which unit trades for what, where, when. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. The other side of the coin is that um, broad strokes, like the tactical missions generally are, you know, like a common complaint, at least for me, for the tactical missions is that sometimes you can get scammed, right? Like if your army's not particularly quick, <laughs> it is very possible that you like draw some tactical cards that are just not happening this turn. Um, felt that pain this weekend. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Like as CSM, I think have like some of the hardest time with it. Cause a lot of your units that are good are like move four units or move five units or whatever, move six units. Um, world leaders, a lot of the tactical deck is like be in your opponent's deployment zone or control an objective in the middle or do some form of action in the middle. And all of those are super easy when you're planning to do them anyway. Um, there was definitely games where people would elect to ignore Angron, which is like an entirely viable way of playing or trying to play around the army. But in those games I had tactical and he's just like stood on their home objective, scoring eight for capture enemy outpost and four on to play teleport homer and five on primary every turn. He's just stood there being a point factory. Um, so that's like a unique upside of tactical for this army that doesn't necessarily always play that way for other armies. Definitely. It's it's tactical definitely rewards you for controlling the board and having fast things to react to people do stuff. And that is exactly what world leaders do. And flip side, super hard to play with tactical against world leaders because of the same reasons, right? Yeah. Who's you're not in the world leaders outpost. Like when's that happening? Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, you can get back there. Cause I'm not usually going to turn around to go get you like gray knights can get away with it, but yeah. Any army that has to do it naturally by, like, going through me is very difficult. Um, one of the other benefits you asked a little bit about denying the opposing secondaries before, right? So a huge benefit that world leaders have that uh, actually all Chaos factions have is that we have... Um, oh, no, sorry. I don't think everybody makes it sticky, but at least CSM and world leaders. Um, our cultist unit is a big 10-man unit, and that big 10-man cloud is an excellent deep strike screen because once they make, they have a rule that lets you make it so your home objective cannot be taken away from you unless someone physically places something there, and then they're a giant 10-man unit screen. Um, that combination usually keeps your backfield safe for at least, you know, two, three turns, and that by that point, it's usually enough on the primary denial that you're really far ahead. So talk to me about, I get all the things, you know, in terms of we're dominating the table, we're dominating primary, points are falling into place all that checks out but now i'm talking about like how do we actually kill our opponent obviously we're super hard hitting in close combat we have amazing stats once we get there getting there is not hard but your opponents have screens you have no guns your opponents have transports you can't crack that you have to open up every single avenue to connect with your opponent the hard way so if they just have like here's my cultist you you know you have to spend a whole turn dealing with that before you get to the obliterators and the forge screen and all that stuff that process has to be very painful. What is your method for dealing with it? So that process can be painful, but it depends a lot on the opponent's positioning to be perfect. So one of the major changes of the 10th edition fight phase is that you are able to now pile into and fight things you did not charge. So very often what will happen is you will see opponents, especially opponents that have been playing the game for like quite a while and have the muscle memory of doing so, will set up their units like, you know, a tightly packed brick of Terminators a couple, you know, an inch or two away from their thin line of cultists that keep their Terminators safe from previous editions, right? You can attest to it, you know, you played in the old days, like people would run into the cultists, kill the cultists, and then you would destroy them with the Terminators, right? This is the way. Right. Now, if you do that in 10th, what happens is I charge into the cultists with a unit of Exalted 8-bound, a big giant burly unit, 
as well as a little five man of corn berserkers. And that five man of corn berserkers erase those cultists from existence. The exalted eight bound then pile in and hit the ex- the terminators who they were not in contact with a minute ago and blast them out of existence. Um, this kind it's of place rules nuance, right? You can activate the unit as long as it made a successful as long charge, as it right? charged. Yeah. Yes. And it can fight whatever. And it can fight whatever it can reach. And additionally, doing things this way removes the ability for the opponent to use the counteroffensive stratagem, the 2CP interrupt, because they're not currently in engagement with anything. So they can't interrupt and hit you. So you essentially get free, full control of the fight phase because that they screen. That always strikes first, too. Yeah, it gets around all sorts of stuff. I used it to get around the Death Leaper with Karn's unit. Otherwise, Death Leaper could have, like, precisioned out Karn. It could have been awkward. Nope. Karn just, you know, his unit tagged a whole bunch of, like, Tyranid screening elements, and Karn just happily piled in and beat the Death Leaper to death. So I've developed an anti-World Eaters defense tactic that I actually employed this past weekend when I played against World Eaters. And yep. it was it was very similar in style to what you're describing, but I specifically left my cultist line four inches in front of everything behind it because yep. I did not want you to pile in through me. Is it, would that trump this tactic of yours, or do you have some other work? That definitely works when opponents do that. You're This is where we kind of lean on those point drops a little bit, right, Nick? So we're, we have a lot of assets because of some rulings that Games Workshop has made and stuff like that. Every unit in World Leaders has a bunch of attacks, but we're often not attaching Lord Invocatus or the Juggernaut Lord to units. And that means we have additional pieces that have like crazy high attack volume as well as the grenades keyword and some other stuff that their entire purpose can go to be to trade down for a screen, but just to remove that screen so that next turn I can get there with something real. The other ace in the hole with this is Angron. Who flies? Flying is always super helpful. The man moves, (laughs) how far does he move in charge? So Angron, if you take all of the movement buffs, goes 22 inches and then charges. And people think they can, they can ignore this man as a game strategy. I mean, he does come back to life. I suppose. Yeah, I was going to say, the the important part of that is that he recycles. Like, there are, like, if he didn't recycle, then yes, it would be, you would just murder him the second you saw him every game all the time. Um, but, like, you know, someone smarter than me has done the math. If you kill Angron on turn two, it's between a 65 and 70% chance with all the manipulation of the rolling that world leaders have that he comes back by turn four. Wow, that is... Awesome. So walk me through those mechanics. How does Angron come back to life? And like, is it part of your strategy when you use him? So I started playing World Eaters without Angron in ninth edition. I didn't use him at all. I thought the resources that he asked of the army were much too much in addition in exchange for what he gave. Um, that has since changed quite a bit. So the way you res- you resurrect Angron now is the World Eaters, you know, faction mechanic is that they'll roll eight dice at the start of the battle round. Um, and use combinations of doubles and triples of those dice for army-wide buffs. In addition to that, if they roll three sixes on those eight dice, they get to resurrect Angron. Um, It does remove those three dice from the pool, but insofar as I can tell, based on all the literature that is available and all the FAQs and asking other judges, it does not count as purchasing a blessing. So you're limited to purchasing two blessings, um, but the three dice are removed from the pool, which would make it kind of difficult to purchase additional blessings. Um, but the short version is basically that you roll three sixes on eight dice, Angron is is back in business. Um, it's worth noting that this happens immediately. He goes into reserve. 
So if your opponent went first, you still roll this dice at the start of the battle round, meaning he could rapid ingress in their turn, uh, which is very dangerous. Oh my god, so let me get this straight. If I kill Angron in my turn, you can revive him and then ingress him, or how does that work? So let's say I... Your turn, let's say you went first, right? Your turn goes pretty well, but not 100% to code, and you get Angron down to one wound left. You know, a shame, but it happens. Then in my turn, I go to move him, and you overwatch me and end Angron's day before he gets to connect. Very sad, but it happens. At the start of the battle round, meaning shortly before your turn, I will roll the blood roll. If I get three sixes on that roll, or on the re-roll, and icons can mess with this too, we'll go over that in a second, he immediately goes into reserves, and I can stretch, I can rapid ingress him. Yeah, and then there's a second Angron on turn two showing up at a deep strike, and I basically have blown my alpha strike already, I'm sure. Yep, and likely, again, at that point, you blew your alpha strike to try to kill him, didn't, you got him in Overwatch, but then my army got to respond to that alpha strike, and now there is another Angron. Yeah. Awesome. So, Angron, obviously, big, scary in close combat. I've been hit by the man. You don't survive being hit by the man. He moves yeah. 20 to 22 inches and flies and comes back to life. How does someone handle this? How do you do anything against that? So, there's one of two ways of handling him. It depends a lot on what army you're playing. The one option, if your opponent didn't take tactical, uh, is to just be like, he kills one thing a turn. He has an aura that's good, but I'm just going to like let him do his thing. This works for certain armies that have very stable game plans that can afford to do something like that. However, not all armies exist in that realm, and if your world user opponent, again, took tactical, I would not advise this. The alternative is to make your opponent hit the three sixes and just end his life when you see him, and just accept that you're going to have to do that. A big part of why you take Angron is that he forces difficult choices, though. I mean, I'm sure that's that's a part of how you play your whole army, right? Is forcing yes. difficult choices. That's being an aggressive player, as you put it. Yep. Yeah, maximum discomfort for my opponent from a gameplay perspective. I try and be nice while I make you uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it's very conflicting. I do my best. <laughs> Good. So I think we beat around a bush just a little while now. So why don't you walk us through what is the list you actually took to LGT? Okay, so to LGT, I played... Um, you know, first one, the Warlord, Angron. I played Lord Invocatus, who is a Juggernaut Lord who gives Scout to other units, uh, which is a huge part of the World Eater's Alpha Strike that we'll go over at some point, I'm sure. Um, I took a standard Juggernaut Lord with the Favorite of Corn enhancement, which lets you re-roll a, you know, a Blood Yahtzee roll. I took a I took Karn the Betrayer, and I took a Master of Executions with the Berserker Glaive, which is an enhancement that gives him plus one attack and damage. And on the charge gives him plus D3 attacks and damage. That guy is like probably the best character in the list. We'll go over him in depth at some point, I am sure. Um, so that's all the characters. I took a unit of jackals, a unit of 10 corn berserkers, a unit of 5 corn berserkers, two rhinos, six exalted eight bound, three exalted eight bound, three regular eight bound. That's the list. When I look at lists like this, I always feel like there's so much design that is behind the the lens of the creator here that no one sees like to me as a looker of the list it is just like world leaders units you know and yep. whatever ratios and sizes and shapes you wanted but world leaders units but i'm sure there's so much math and calculation and thought behind why each unit is there what's your i guess quick pitch for all of them if you could Okay, sure. So, do you want me to... I'll start in, like, characters and work my way down, and I'll just pair the characters with their units, and I think that makes the most sense. Um, 
So Angon, we kind of went over already. He moves really fast. He, in addition to the, like all the other stuff that he does, he gives you a really good like anti big stuff answer. Um, because on his big profile, he's strength six nine attacks on the charge at strength sixteen neg four d six plus two damage. Um, and then past that point, he also has a six inch aura of either plus one to charge or reroll all hits that are both extremely good uh, for just, like, upping the consistency of the World Leader's army in ways that may otherwise be, you know, kind of unreliable. Um, so that's Angron. Uh, past that, we have Lord Invocatus, who enables the, you know, the dreaded World Eater's Alpha Strike, the the nightmare scenario where the World Eater's player goes first, and then an exalted 8-bound unit moves 23 inches before you're able to react to it between its 6-inch scout move and then its 17-inch normal move. Um, and then charges. Uh, it's very scary to enable that across many units. Um, so Invocatus does that, and he himself scouts. So essentially the World Leader's army will have four total scouting units in this setup, where Invocatus does it, the six-man of eight-bound does it, the three-man of exalted eight-bound does it, as does the three-man of standard eight-bound. Um, so it's a lot of scout-moving assets kind of all coming at you at once. Um, from there, the Lord on Juggernaut, he's just a really good, like, backfield sweeper, and he's the most durable character that can carry the enhancement that is, like, mandatory for the army. Um, from there, we have the Master of Executions. Might be, like, the hardest-hitting single character in a game. Uh, if you spend the CP on him for a plus one doing against, you know, character vehicle monster units, he can, like, just one round lights out an avatar by himself, depending on the D3 roll that he gets on the way in. Uh, be that avatar of Kane or Yinkarn. Um, that's because his Berserker Glaive gives him an extra D3 damage when he attacks with it? Yeah, so the Berserker Glaive gives him an extra D3 damage, and because it is a modifier and how modifiers are calculated in 10th, the halving of the damage characteristic occurs before the adding of the D3. Oh, wow. So basically, the Avatar takes your damage 2 characteristic, halves it to 1, then you add D3. And if correct. I'm not correct on this, you roll 1 D3 and that applies to every single attack, you don't roll like an extra... Yep. Because the, the D3 is rolled in the charge phase, because you roll it when he connects. Oh, okay. So this guy could just be anywhere between damage 3 and damage 5. Yep. Uh, what a in, number. in addition to that, he has precision, dev wounds, and has full roll to hit and wound against character models, or character units. So he is very dangerous to an avatar. You're making my CS um, so jealous right now. He's very good. He also gives his unit fight first. Um <laughs> And he chills with 10 Berserkers, I'm sure. He usually hangs out with 5 in this list because of the next entry. <laughs> so the next unit is Karn the Betrayer. Karn hits very hard. Uh, he is 9 attacks on the charge at 7, 2, 3. Uh, strength 7, AP 2, damage 3. He always fights on death. So while world leaders have access to that as a tide buff, Karn himself always does it. And he gives his unit real ones to hit and wound, which means that him, stapled to 10 Corn Berserkers, is a easy 20-man of Necron solution that requires no external buffing whatsoever. They can just be on the other side of the table, jump out of the Rhino, go 17, and exterminate some stuff by themselves. Wow, it sounds like you've thought of like every possible opponent when you're designing your list here. Is that a big factor for you when you're designing lists, like what you're going to play against? Yeah, because I try and keep an eye on like what profiles I have in the army, and I want to make sure that I have enough you know, like gas, so to speak, for every existing profile that I will care a lot about. Um, the 611 profile of that many corn berserkers is also really brutal for Tau suits because they usually have a character attached, which means that you can trigger plus one to wound. 
and then you can have sustained hits. So all of a sudden, these Tau suits are getting hit just by the Berserkers, chain axes 40 times at 611 on threes rolling ones and then twos are rolling ones. I mean, you don't have to tell me that the world leaders hit hard. I'm sure you got <laughs> that part covered. I'm yes. so interested in how you actually apply all these units, which is going to be the crux of our conversation in part two. Like, where do you put these models? What char- baits do you set out? How do you break the screens and set the tempo? Because all that, you know, it, it all makes sense on paper, makes sense over this audio podcast. But yeah, it doesn't translate until you know exactly where to put the models yourself. So hopefully we can cover that in part two. Yes, so let's sir. finish this list up here. So that's the that's Karn and the Berserkers. That is, you know, Mo and the Five Man. Um, that's most of the units. Oh, oh, the Jackals are super important. So obviously they make an objective sticky. Um, they're also very unlikely to die to a like random indirect gun because they go. They have a six up feel no pain base. When you pick the feel no pain army wide, they go to a five up. So now you have cultists that are on like five up cover saves with a five up feel no pain and they can be rather annoying for a lot of the indirect pieces to remove just remove outright additionally if they hold an objective in the command phase they make it you know they make it sticky you hold it until someone comes and takes it away from you and that combination of things is really really nice um making an objective sticky sounds like so good for the world leaders you know you have oh it's the best there to take it away no thank you yeah it's it's so wonderful um it also means that, like, if someone wants to plan to take your home field away from you, as long as you screen it out from being, like, three-inch deep struck on, your opponent usually has to set up some, like, weird, like, three-turn plan to take your home field away from you. And that is really good for you, because any amount of time that lets you cook their primary assets is great. Right. Um, and then the list kind of rounds off on, like, the eight-bound. Um, Exalted eight-bound hit extremely hard, as we know. Um, but they they're, they have, their assets are twofold, basically. Um, the Exalted eight-bound... Have a six up feel no pain base again, which goes to a five up when you take the army wide. They have a aura of if you'd like to fall back, you have to roll a leadership test and succeed first. Otherwise, you are stuck in melee, and that just ends a game sometimes. Nick, no, I, I really can see that. I mean, that sounds horrible. Fail the wrong one of those against world leaders, and you're just done. Yeah, you're just stuck in with like a six man and Angron, and you know it's it's not good. Um, As an outsider looking at world leaders, it feels like you have all of these potential just game end situations which are not reliable at all like go first to scout up and charge somebody angron comes back to life early um trapped in combat oops you know or yeah. even just like yolo 12 inch charge something like that like yeah if you attempt all of these different things you know any given one is unreliable something will go your way though and is that kind of the overall approach to it yeah it's so a big part of the idea is that like you're not going to bet the game on any given you know 60 thing, but you will try nine to 10 of those over the game. And if two pass, the game is likely over because world leaders plan themselves as, you know, pretty high consistency, right? Like I'm the thing I'm looking to shove people off is pretty deterministic in primary. Um, But the introducing of the uncertainty to their game plan is a key part of what you're doing as world leaders. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Like if, you, if a lot of players, I think like the antithesis would be like a control style army, just like systematically screens and shoots and screens and shoots. But the more wrenches you can throw into that, the more trouble they'll have. Or especially like as you put it, try 10 things to stick. You know, that's a big deal. Right. Exactly. And I think a lot of like, you know, if I had to compare it to other armies, like a lot of armies, in, especially in singles, right, are racing to 100. You know, it's a common tactic, right? Like, I'm going to get my 100, even if you... All I have to do is stop you from scoring two more points, and that's it, I win, right? Yep. 
world leaders aren't racing their score up. That'll kind of happen innately just by virtue of like the primary and the taking tactical or the taking like a super easy uh, fix. They're actually just racing their opponent's score down. And that is the entire game. That's very much your style. And I'm super excited to talk about it. Anthony, if would you change anything about this list in hindsight? Or is this like how you like your world? <laughs> so... It lands at a clean 1975, Nick, which drives me a little insane. I could not do that. I would rip something apart to make my list work. (laughs) Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I haven't found an answer that I like really like to that problem yet. Um, Jack, I went back and forth with Jack on this a bunch, um, and he played like a very similar version of my list, just like tuned a little differently because he doesn't, he didn't like. Karn or like the smaller berserker squad as much and he didn't like 1975 either no one yeah no i'm sure he also um didn't feel the second rhino was super necessary on gw terrain whereas i like really really love transports and rhinos i don't know if that's some part of like when i used to play jukari will just always live with me transports Uh, are great i'm with you yeah they're so powerful in this edition like emergency disembark being free is crazy um but the yeah, I like I haven't run into a thing yet where I was like, oh, I should change something yet. Um, Berserkers like on paper seem like they're just not going to be very good. And then you realize that every time they activate, pretty much they have plus one to wound. And then suddenly that unit is awesome. <laughs> and yeah, um, Blood Surge is also like a, you know, for people that are here because they don't know World Eaters, Blood Surge is a rule that Corn Berserkers have that you need to be paying very close attention to. Um, it is when you shoot at a Berserker unit. If you kill any of them, they get to make something called a blood surge move of up to, of D6. When they do that, they have to go directly to the closest enemy unit, but they can end in engagement range. So unless you are wholly outside of seven inches with all the units in your army from these berserkers, when you go to shoot them, if you shoot at them and they hit a six, they are now in engagement range. I'm sure that can end games, too. That also can end games, because, again, one of those units has a Fight's First character attached to it. Oh, my God, yeah. (laughs) Just, oops, I shot you into close combat with my unit that hasn't shot yet, and you get to kill it in my turn. Yeah. Well, and, like, every the problem with the Fight's First unit, right, is that, like, every unit, you know, like, even if you do that to Karn's unit, I would hit the unit that I ran into first. But now, with the Fight's First unit, you've actually created a problem for yourself that is not really got a solution, because... Normally, what you would do to resolve that problem is like, okay, I messed up. I can just charge them with something else and kind of resolve this, right? Because they have fights first, you can't even charge your way out of this problem. Like, that unit's just going to hit you first no matter what you do. Oh, my God. That's so dirty. And, yeah. like, it's the master of executions of the Berserker Clave and 10 Berserkers. Like, have four five, but have fun with yeah. that. Either way is not great, right? Right. <laughs> no one wants to get it by that. Yes. Awesome, Anthony. Well, is there anything I haven't asked you? I mean, obviously, we're going to save a lot of the matchup discussion placement and all that stuff's going to be in part two uh, for our subscribers on AOW40K.com. But what am I missing here? Um, I think, like, the big thing is just that, like, as much as world leaders are billed as a, like, you know, put your head down, like, no thoughts, just rush army, there are definitely the army that I am like having to use my brain the most when I'm playing of my armies because they just don't have a shooting phase at all. So like if something goes wrong in your charge phase or you like set up your plan incorrectly, it has the most like volatility that is out of your hands as a pilot. Um, and it's just like a thing to keep in mind when you're playing against world leaders is that your opponent has a lot of like checks where a game can go wrong for them as well. Like did they go first or second? 
you know, did Angron just say, I'm not coming back this game, I don't care what the odds are? Did they just fail that four-inch charge with a reroll? Unlucky, sometimes that happens, you know? So there's a lot of, like, volatility, volatility on the game in both sides. You're trying to mitigate that as the world leader pilot by having a super consistent game plan between, you know, like, tactical and primary denial. But it's not entirely out of your hands or in your hands. Yeah, like, you know, you I didn't even cover the fact that your entire army's damage is random whether or not it gets to be applied. Like, sixes are safe, fives are safe for charges, but... Yeah, past that, it gets out. real sketchy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> even those, you know, you, I've, I've failed sixes to lose games. Like, life oh, sucks yeah, 100%. How do, you, how do you actually contemplate mitigating that? Like, is it just, you know, don't go for the charge if you have points in, in front of you type of thing? Like... It depends on how important it is, right? So I, I kind of have a bit of a checklist that I go through at the start of any given turn, where, like, step one is, like, can I inflict, like, game-ending, back-breaking damage right now? That's step one. Because if I can do that, then, like, the scoring can take a backseat for a second while I set that up. Step two is, like, can I give my opponent either, a, like, a literal zero on primary? Not, like, a five. A lot of the missions have, like, some degree of primary recovery, and, like, I'm kind of trying to give you a five anyway. I'm not going to sacrifice other things for it. But if I can give them a zero, some other stuff can take a backseat for a second. And then the last step is just, like, where are my guaranteed points this turn, right? Um, Things that, like, fall into step one, I'll take an eight or a seven. Things that fall into step two are, like, the seven or six-inch charge. And then step three is, like, I'm taking fives here. You know what I mean? So it just depends on, like, the level of risk to the level of reward. There are certain times where, like, Angron rezzed at, like, the timing such that he will come down in my turn. I'm not waiting a full turn to wrap at him. I'm deep-striking him, using the plus one to charge aura in my charge phase, because that's when you use his auras, and then just hitting, trying to hit an eight. And, like, if he hits it, money. If he doesn't, he's in a position that is uncomfortable for my opponent to handle while, again, stopping my 15s. Right. Makes a lot of sense. So, a lot of it's going to be contextual, like you said, and I think that's a great place to kind of end up our first part of the conversation. Anthony, thanks so much for coming on Chat and World Leaders. I know this is a super popular episode that people have been loving for. Absolutely. All right. Well, subscribers, we'll see you on AOW40K.com. For those of you who are patrons, for those of you who are not, I highly implore you to give us a shot. You get access to part two of this episode along with 200 plus other episodes and our amazing Discord server where you can literally bother Anthony any time of the day and somehow he replies. That is true. (laughs) No, this man's a monster, literally. He's a prophet of corn to show you the light of the truth. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.